This podcast is brought to you by the new courses on offer over at fxphd.com with a huge range of topics from motion graphics to the new RenderMan. Plus, you can even sample an entire class from our new 300-level new course. Just go to fxphd.com slash blog. Hi, and welcome to this week's VFX show. It's episode 188, Guardians of the Galaxy. And I should just point out that uh, we're going to try and get the show a little bit more regular coming up. We've uh, got back from SIDGRAPH. Things are looking good. And we have uh, a retro show coming up. We also have uh, a new Maze Runner and some TV shows, a whole bunch of stuff coming up. But this week on the show, we are going into the distant parts of the, uh, I guess, Galaxy Hero Quest. And uh, I'm joined by uh, two uh, very formidable opponents in my intergalactic quest, starting with you, Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt? I am great. I'm uh, super excited to be here and uh, really excited to talk about this one. And Ty Rubin, how are you, sir? I'm doing fantastic, and I too am uh, quite excited to uh, kick the ball around on this one as well. So somebody came up to me at SIDGRAPH and they said, you're going to change the name of the show to, you know, what we, what we effects guys think of movies. And I said, no. And they said, because you guys sidetracked in discussing the movie. And I said, well, we like to discuss it at the beginning, but we like to go discuss the effects. And he's like, all right, as long as you discuss, you know, more of the visual effects. And so I went, all right, I'll make a huge effort to do that. But I want to thank everyone that did come up and say hi uh, to us at SIDGRAPH. It was uh, great. And also at the facilities we visited in uh, San Francisco and Los Angeles. A lot of listeners to the show. So um, thanks so much to you guys. Uh, in fact, there are even listeners here in my building. Somebody got in the lift the other day with me and said that they listened to the show here at, uh, from Method. So, guys, let's start with the film before we go to the visual effects of it. And are you uh, with me in thinking this was the dumbest idea for a film when you first heard about it before you actually saw any uh, trailers or images? No. Okay. Because <laughs> I thought it was really <laughs> stupid. A tree and a raccoon. This is like that was going to be their... Um, Jumping the shark. I thought Marvel has just become greedy. This is going to be something I won't want to watch. Um, I was all ready to just declare it to be the dumbest idea in history. So you'd read about it before you saw any of the trailers then? I, I knew I of the Marvel even... Master Plan. Uh, okay, because I, I don't think I'd read any of that stuff. So, so maybe yes, I would say, <laughs> because I didn't know. Because I'm not anyone that's followed the comic books or been, you know, fans of it in any way, shape or form. In fact, I was quite ignorant and my kids had to explain to me, you know, who the heck it was. But, uh, yeah, no, so so uh, I'm alone in thinking it was just the dumbest idea in history. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I, I like trailers. I've, I, even going back to like my childhood as a, my youngest memory of movies was I got a, I get a big kick out of the trailers. I'm one of those people that has to go in plenty of time to to see all the trailers and um i think over the last i don't know half decade decade with so many uh properties coming out of uh, the comic book universe and those kinds of pictures sometimes i kind of i kind of think that they seem familiar to me like like they seem familiar in a way that i kind of go oh this must be connected to you know iron man or this must be connected to you know, Captain America, there's a certain kind of quality that, 
that they communicate to one another. And when this one came on, uh, when the the trailer for Guardians came on, I was, I remember being distinctly kind of surprised and and curious right away by it. I didn't have any knowledge of the material in advance, and I think it was like so many people, um, you know, initially it was the use of music. You know, it was the use of these kind of oddball, you know, 70s songs that I grew up with. And um, then the kind of fidelity of the effects uh, and the kind of um, cleverness and, and heart that it showed right off the bat to me as being kind of, you know, a, a comedy. Uh, so I was, I was curious about it. It wasn't until, I'll be honest, that I actually started hearing so many great reviews, in, including Matt Wallen, who really just... He said it was the most fun he'd had in a movie since Star Wars. I mean, that's pretty big praise <laughs> coming from an exile emmer. So I went, I went out really because of the, uh, the feelings I got from the trailer and then the, the, the buzz that I was hearing. I, I totally agree with you that the, um, the music, and of course I'm at that age where I hated that music because my music was the music that came in the 80s, not the music that was in the... Yeah, you were like a ska boy, weren't you? Yeah, I was a rude boy. Like, I, I, you know, I've had a huge amount of respect for punk, but my heart lay in, uh, in ska and, um, and reggae and stuff. So I just, just rejected all of this kind of 70s stuff. And having said that, I must admit, while I haven't bought the soundtrack... I was happy that it, the soundtrack went to number one. It seemed like the guys um, did a good job. And in the film, I thought it was totally appropriate music. In fact, it was better than appropriate. It was really good in the film. But yeah, I, in the trailer, it was a remarkable turnaround for me. I was like, okay, this doesn't look too bad. I'm not sure yet. Still not sure. My kids completely were like sold at the trailer stage. And um, when I went to see it, I got to see a press screening of it. I thought it was really good. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I had a good time. And um, and I just so uh, a month or two earlier would have said I wouldn't. So, but Matt, justify your best time since Star Wars remark. Good lord, man! <laughs> yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird comment. But you know, I I, um, I, I was pretty excited to see it after seeing the uh, initial trailer, and I would echo uh, your guys' sentiments about the soundtrack too. Like I grew up listening to a lot of you know, like eighties uh, American hardcore punk rock music and stuff and i wasn't as big on the uh the disco no. uh, or the kind of <laughs> 70s sound um although i always did like david bowie though i always had well a soft yeah but spot david bowie the, is uh and he transcends in the, that in the mix but you know i gotta tell you like i i i have bought the soundtrack and oh really my wife and son and i drove up to uh washington dc and drove back and we listened to the soundtrack a couple times in the car on the road and i mean it's fun it's a heck of a lot of fun and it works so great with the way they um sort of wove it into the narrative of the film and and the the story the jo jason quill uh story with the awesome mixtape from his mother and all that kind of stuff i thought was really great but you know to get to the larger uh issue i so just before I, we leave the soundtrack, I just want to flag oh, yeah. the fact that that Marvin Gaye, I, you know, I mean, we, we, it's not all just 70s disco, right? Like the Runaways and Marvin Gaye and Bowie, really, it's the 10cc and stuff that I just completely choked at. But yeah, okay, go on. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely a really eclectic oh, uh, yeah. mix as far as that goes. But um, yeah, it's funny. Like I... I um, I wasn't really sure quite what to expect going into the film, although I knew that, you know, given the track record that Marvel's had so far, I assumed that it was probably going to be, you know, a pretty good flick, pretty entertaining um, 
narrative overall. And I like a lot of the actors that were in it, I think, and the, even the voice actors. I think, you know, it sounded like a fun ride. And I think James Gunn has proven himself as a filmmaker to make some, uh, in making some pretty, uh, pretty inter- entertaining previous films. But, um, I don't know. There was something about this one. My, we went and saw it. We saw it just straight up 2D. We didn't see the 3D IMAX. My wife and son and I again went and saw it over the summer here. And, uh, I don't know. I, I, I watched the film with no expectation, uh, just hoping for a fun, entertaining ride. And I loved it. I loved it. It was one of the, it was, I, 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 I think not immediately, but somewhat after the fact, like as it started to kind of sink in more and I was, I found myself kind of chuckling at things that I remembered happening in the movie. I, I really did. I said to Ty at one point, I said, I think it's the most fun I've had in a movie for a movie of that genre of that ilk since the original star Wars. Like that's kind of a radical statement, but I, I really, really enjoyed it. I think it was, it was so good. There was something so interesting uh, going on and it, it had such a, um, uh, a kind of a, a touch of seriousness and, and an emotional quality to the story, but then it had a great sense of humor and there was a lot of camp. And I think maybe at my um, stage in life, it really resonated. I just thought it was, it hit all the notes perfectly. I really dug it. Yeah. So there were a bunch of companies behind the visual effects, MPC, Framestore, Luma Pictures, Method, Imageworks, but to name a few, I think uh, it was third floor. It might've been proof as well. It did, um, uh, previews on the thing. Um, so let's switch to the visual effects and discussing the work the guys did. And I don't think you can go anywhere but start with the fact that if um, that Rocket hadn't worked, to a certain extent, Groot, but if Rocket hadn't worked, it would have just been ridiculous. It would have been just hopeless. Was it, in your opinion, harder to get a raccoon to work on screen or a tree? Ty, what do you reckon? <sighs> You know, I, I, before I can really respond exactly to that, I mean, what I felt was done almost on a subliminal level and which I really respected just from having seen, you know, so many uh, films through the course of my year was that the whole world, the whole universe had a quality about it, sort of a, uh, a kind of both in the color choices and the amount of detail and what was real and what was kind of hyper real. And it was a very sophisticated, in my mind, just presentation of of um of of a backdrop that that played so importantly in in the picture and then and then on top of that you had these really wild characters and and i kind of speaking a little bit to matt's point which i found interesting is some of those aliens that you see in the crowd scenes or just in on the city and stuff i mean they really were just kind of that star warsy historical humans with prosthetics um, and yet they were kind of embraced in the same way as being just just as um, relevant to the story as the more sophisticated prosthetics or the more sophisticated animatronics or even the fully realized computer generated character so so it was layers and layers of like flavor that added up to I think uh, to create this sort of platform on which uh, you know rocket and um, Groot could 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 exist. And uh, for me, I, I really think that, that, that to create a character that, you know, we've all seen foxes and dogs and stuff like that. We know that anatomy really well, just as being around animals in our lifetime. And they captured enough of that biological reality to make me at times entirely forget that it, it wasn't 
a real animal. Um, but at the same time, they gave a real range um, in the performance. So, you know, there's that moment where Rocket sort of describes having been manipulated and genetically created or, or you know, augmented or made. And you, you really mm -hmm. feel, uh, you know, you feel for that character that is really designed in a way to just be kind of a hooligan, sort of a, you know, uh, quick talking, snappy, you know, um, one dimensional type of character, but was really... Um, you know, fully realized. So I think both characters worked really well. And I think that the Rocket character, you were waiting for his next joke and you totally didn't care. You know, it sort of reminded me a little bit like at the best moments when the Muppets, you know, in the best moment when you have an animated <laughs> cartoon, you know, the best moment when it's working, there's a magic where you don't care anymore. You totally invested in this thing as a real character and you're just waiting for the next time for them to say a line or to do something interesting. Here's so. the thing that, that Marvel does, I reckon, very, very well. It loves its characters and it loves them so completely that it gives you the excuse to love them too. At no point does it say it's obviously a bit dumb and we kind of like laughing at it too because it's a raccoon. They're like, no, we love this character and, and, and it's okay to love him too because uh, he's really valid and I'm not going to you know, make him seem dumb or silly in a way that, um, that the audience kind of feels a bit guilty or juvenile for caring, which is remarkable, right? Because, I mean, time and time again, they're the most absurd things to screen and, and in a way that has as you say like i mean you care when he's talking about the genetic manipulation it's like you kind of feel sorry for him and it's some good acting going on i i think frame story did a really really good job um oh totally i was gonna say too you know the other thing i think that's really interesting on sort of a, a really broad scope um effects perspective with regards to rocket and groot in particular is that you know it's it's, you know, we, we sort of accept it now as something that's, um, you know, totally doable to have a completely all digital character interacting, uh, with live action actors in the, uh, in a narrative, in a film. I think we kind of accept that that's of course, certainly more than possible, but I think what they did in this film that really, uh, I think made those characters work even better. I mean, aside from the fact that I think, you know, the frame store work on rocket, I think was, you know, just top notch. I mean, just the, you know, all the fur rendering and the animation and the eyes and then the character animation itself. I mean, it's just, and the lip sync animation. I mean, everything was really just so well executed. Um, I think they, they also integrated the characters into the script in a way where the kind of um, the witty repartee between the characters and then the, even the interaction with, you know, Rocket and Groot, um, Groot sort of being the straight man to Rocket's, you know, kind of <laughs> comedian, I guess, right? Like when they had the the one scene I watched just before uh, recording the show tonight was what the one scene I could find online. There's the clip of the conversation where they're talking about how they have a plan, you know, he's and he says, yeah. I have part of a plan, you know, and the way that that scene plays out with all of the characters kind of... Um, uh, in the script anyway, they're all articulating 
key elements of their personalities and sort of the, the frictions between them all. But Groot and Rocket are really central to the dialogue yeah. uh, that's going on and, <laughs> and the way in which the actors play off of these virtual characters who, you know, only come on the scene much later. Although I know they had people's, uh, I think it was James Gunn's brother, actually, that sat in for some of the uh, sessions as the character on set. That's correct. Sheen, um, Sheen Gunn would literally sit you know in the yeah. set um yeah but i mean i think that speaks to the you know the effectiveness of the character animation and the rendering of the character in the scene i mean you know in a way uh rocket and i think groot really maybe even more than rocket they become so uh potent as kind of an emotional center uh for the larger film that it's really the digital characters that um you know really have so much heart in this narrative yeah, they didn't have um, Rocket, if we just stay on Rocket for a second, they didn't have Rocket being uh, very elastic in his facial expressions. He wasn't like over-accentuating the words or being in a tune sense kind of, you know, gee whiz, wow, you know, kind of poppy. Um, he he would as often as not sort of shake his head and look down or kind of sneer, but he wouldn't, you know what I mean? Like he didn't do those kind of bigger pantomime type um, actions, which I think really helped the character a lot. Well, it grounded him. It made him more yeah. like he was like a real raccoon, you know. Um, I believe that MPC also did some rocket work. I said it was Framesaw. Obviously, Framesaw did do um, a huge amount, but I think I'm right in saying that uh, that MPC also did some stuff. But um, uh, I could be wrong there. But uh, I know that Framesaw's uh, fur work on this is something that really, really impressed me. It was a very complicated um, system. And I understand he was rendered in Arnold, which is uh, really... Um, coming through very, very, very solidly in these uh, high-end production um, uh, processes. I mean, solid angles, uh, Arnold is really, you know, kicking it. And and that, I think, is giving us this realism in terms of the combination of, you know, the great fur, which is really more a frame store thing, and the great rendering of that fur um, is giving us such realism in terms of sitting the characters in because at no point did I feel like they were you know, wrongly lit or uh, sitting out or, you know, floating, um, which of course is an animation thing, but you know what I mean? Like they just felt so in the scene that it was incredible. You think so, Ty? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I actually was trying before we um, came on air tonight to try to think about anything that I observed that, you know, gave me pause and I, I really couldn't come up with anything. I mean, there's a certain kind of, again, I, I think the movie uh, from a global perspective is it feels synthesized i mean it there it they did create a universe that was not entirely about you know earth reality it was a, a kind of hyper reality but it was so well established and so consistent and provided such a strong backdrop a stage for all this uh the you know the action to unfold on that it it really kept kept my um, focus on the action and then the characters and the writing and all the things we just discussed. There was nothing that, yeah, there were, you know, maybe there was a, you know, Groot was such a strange character that at times, um, you know, he, you, he did these things you didn't expect, you know, like grew, grew roots or, or, you know, expanded or, or, you know, had his limbs chopped off. So there was a certain kind of surrealism about that character that you go, your brain was saying, well, um, that doesn't, seem real to me but if it were it would look like this you know what i mean it sort of said you know i don't i don't know what a, a big nine foot you know creature getting chopped with a big knife is would look like it seems like it would 
maybe you know be weirder than it appears but i kind of believe what i'm seeing so again i think there was this really global recognition of the aesthetic that was established and it really kind of staying in that universe and keeping it in that universe and not allowing for you know extraneous kinds of um of um situational stuff that didn't feel like it belonged there it was very yeah I have three things that fall in my I didn't like it category, but I'll, I'll come back to those because I'm not, I'm not 100% with you guys on this, but, but I'm, I'm with you most of the way. Let's, let's finish out running out our initial discussion of Groot because um, Groot is a character uh, that's also clearly being rendered in 3D to achieve stuff. But I, I laughed earlier, I think, Matt, when you were talking because you said in that scene all the dialogue relies on Groot and Rocket. And I, I laughed only because Groot's dialogue is clearly <laughs> fairly limited. Um, sure, sure. But from an animator's point of view, um, in both cases of Groot and Rocket, you're not really talking about you know motion capture. Um, there's obviously reference that you can get from an actor on stage, but these are these are you know two of the forces of character animation are uh, keyframed based, and sure. also just with Groot, you're getting an enormous amount of expression out of a face that's meant to be pretty stiff. It can't be very rubbery, or it's not going to look like wood. And on top of that, you've got dialogue that's consisting of, you know, like the same sort of three words, which is, I think, uh, really MPC's work on this character, you know, you can't, you shouldn't sort of jump past that, I think. It's like a really tough challenge. Okay. Well, you got to make him... I, yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I think it's it's the ultimate, uh, you know, accolades for a, uh, you know, animation team with regards to what they accomplish with Groot, given that, you know, he, although he does wind up emoting a great deal with his, you know, three, his three words, his I am Groot, uh, he does wind up having a good number of variations in what he can say, but, you know, it's, it speaks a lot to, um, you know, the talent of the animators, uh, in terms of what they're able to bring, uh, to life through the, you know, in conjunction with the motion capture too, because it's all a performance that relies so heavily on pantomime, right? I mean, there's, there's really so little, uh, if anything that he says verbally, although I think they play that up as far as they can. And then it's all reliant on, you know, sort of his meandering sort of curiosity, wandering about the set in a given scenario, like while someone else is talking in the foreground, like in the prison scene or later in the film, you know, when he, uh, seems to sort of almost, uh, engage in a kind of, uh, a set of behaviors or transformative moments that we sort of don't know that he's even capable of, whether it's the, mm. you know, the thing, the, the sort of cocoon that he makes of himself, uh, when he sort of sacrifices himself or when he's, uh, in the scene I was referencing earlier, when he like, there's like a, a, a little sprig growing off of his shoulder and he like bites off his own, he's like grooming himself, you know, and everybody's kind of repulsed, you know? So there's a lot of really interesting kind of comical things that happen with the character as well, which in the end, like, I mean, he, he becomes so um, endearing through the animation and the motion capture performance that's provided for us. Like, I mean, obviously that's the intent, but I think it speaks to its success that like, I mean, I don't know. I, I left the theater and my 10 year old son, you know, left the theater. Like, you know, we love that character. He was awesome. You know? Well, not only that, but I think that little uh, character study with, I'm going to call it baby Groot, but you might mm -hmm, think of mm -hmm. it as a sapling, I guess. Um, <laughs> That's become a huge fan favorite, but that was a brilliant piece of, you know, I mean, you could put that on your reel as a character animator and say, I did that. And I hope that's all you'd have to do because I thought it was just 
very well uh, done. It was a great study. It was clearly very funny. And uh, I think that's just, you know, I've seen people with that on T-shirts now It's uh, mm-hmm. or drawings of it or representations of it. I mean, that little bit at the end was just delightful. You... um. Can I ask, can I switch gears now? Because, I mean, obviously those two characters are great. We, we've, there are a few things I want to loop back on. Um, but I said before that there were some things I didn't like. Let me get those out of the way. And then I want to um, move on to the environments and the ships and stuff. Um, so the three things that I didn't like, I, did, I did not like the performances from Glenn Close and John uh, Riley as the, um, on the like Nova Prime and, and on the planet. I thought that Glenn Close was um, 101 Dalmatians large and I didn't think she needed to be. And I, It was too campy. Yeah, it was. And generally as the, whatever he was, the sergeant or the, the sort of guard guy, I just, I found him terrific in, I think, Chicago. Like he's been in some stuff where he's really, really good. But when I see him in these kind of roles, I just don't buy him um, I just see him as an actor. I just don't see him as the character. Not because I think he's a good actor. I just think he's just a miscasting. He's got a very kind of, I don't know, how can I put this? It's really weird, but it's like a classic 70s character actor who you saw in lots of different Disney films, but never was that character. He was just the guy serving the plot at this point, And he just feels like that in this film. So those two are the only performances that I really was down on. But the two visual effects that I was down on, uh, is it Thanos, the... Um, uh, mm-hmm. With his face and jaw, I just didn't buy that at all. Like, I didn't buy it in about 15 different levels. I didn't buy it in the film because it just seemed oddly... I mean, I'm sure it's faithful to the cartoon, but if you've not seen the cartoon, the jaw and the face just don't seem particularly believable. It seems, again, comical and over-the-top and and done to perhaps be um, true to the, to the comics, but... I don't really care because you kind of get away with stuff in comics or maybe it didn't even work in the comics. Um, even the, the nature of the skin just didn't seem to be anywhere near the level that we've seen in the rest of the film. So that character didn't work. His, the skin on his face, it looks, it looks like Darth Vader's pants or something, you know? Yeah. It was just it's like, just such a weird aesthetic. Yeah. I mean, Ty, did you think that he worked? He was, is, am I wrong? But he also appeared in the post um, credits of the most recent um, Captain yeah, America film, right? But he didn't appear. Uh, I don't think it was Captain America. I think that was. Uh, oh, the was, Avengers. Yeah, it was Avengers. the Avengers. Yeah. But he was kind of dark and mysterious then. And I don't mind a big, thumping, dark and mysterious guy. But here he's doing that whole dialogue scene, and he just looked. Yeah, I mean, I, I think. Well, I I think that that obviously it's a character of some importance to the Marvel universe, and I'm not yeah. that familiar with him. Now that you've brought it up, it seemed as though he appeared in a kind of standalone, you know, kind of like an offshoot because that whole little sequence was sort of. You know, I kind of now that I heard you de- describing it, I do remember just kind of wondering, you know, what the importance of this guy was. And it, sometimes there's a there's a certain kind of uh, like you know where they're weaving the story into a larger universe that I'm unaware of, where I assume that's what's happening. So I kind of wait it out. But uh, you know, it didn't seem. You're right. It, I don't think it it did seem that it was as integrated into the larger picture. It did seem a little bit on its on its own. And you know, it it's sort of weird when you can do anything you want to a character and you choose to just give it a really big jaw. I mean, that doesn't. Yeah. 
You know, it I mean, seems to me like sort of with, an odd thing. I had the same issue with, say, a Judge Dredd, um, and I would have the same issue with a Superman. With that if you've got something in the comic book, like let's take Superman, right, the underpants on the outside kind of thing, there's a point which you have to say, look, I understand that was there from day one, but it just looks silly. We're just going to not have the red underpants. We'll make them the same color as the rest of the suit and, you know, get over it. And in this case, I felt like you've got this really, really dumb, huge jaw, which, yes, I understand that's in the comic book and who am I to say that this character doesn't have a very big jaw because he's, you know, certainly not of this world, but it just doesn't look right. It doesn't look believable. Um, and so get over it. Just fashion it differently so that it's more kind of, I don't know, it just it just really didn't work. And as I said, it wasn't even just the dimensions of the jaw. The skin rendering just didn't seem anywhere near on par with what we saw in terms of flawless rendering on, say, Rocket. But that's... Yeah, I mean, you know, on a, on a, 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 a little bit of both, I guess the positive and negative side, I would say, I mean, I love the addition of Josh Brolin uh, doing the voice work for the character. I mean, he's it's just so fun to hear him speak. Sure. And there even was a little bit of Josh Brolin, I think, uh, that I felt like I could see in the performance. Maybe just his voice is so strong that I'm interpreting that, but I felt like maybe there was some kind of um, facial capture maybe that was done. I don't know. But um. And then, uh, but to go along with what you're saying, uh, too, I think that the environment, um, that they constructed for Thanos, like he just kind of like hangs out on this really lame, boring rock. Yeah. You know, it's like in the middle of nothing, like, and it's not a very, compared to some of the other environments in the film, like nowhere and, uh, some of the other places that they go to, um, in the floating city, um, kind of vibe the big skull floating in space i think you know just visually is so much more interesting and then where thanos who's kind of the mastermind of you know this whole thing uh he just was so it was so bland i mean did you just feel like something really boring like you know you you're some kind of mega demigod god powerful creature and you just sit looking out into space on a thing you can't even get up and walk around on because you'd fall off i mean it just seemed like I, I think you're making a good point, a, but I, I think guess it's a really boring place to hang out. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think that it, but again, I mean, I guess I, I'm not sure quite honestly, if I would have even remembered that scene, because I think I just checked out and was trying to understand yeah. why, why do I care about it? And, you know, it clearly, uh, you know, and then the, 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 you compare that to what Matt just was alluding to is the incredible, you know, excavated head. I, I thought that was, you know, uh, just the idea of a massive head that people are, you know, um, you know, excavating and flying inside of and, and, you know, taking all these pieces and using them for different things. And uh, that was so original and extraordinary that, um, you know, I guess that's why my memory would go more to that than, uh, you know, than the rock okay, cause in that, space. Unfortunately, that was my third point, which is when I saw Nowhere in the film, I just had another one of those... Um, I don't know. It it was such a overly effectsy shot because it wasn't just a job. I mean, I like the concept of what you just described, but this was like somebody turned the chroma key level up. I mean, the chroma levels up to like a hundred, a hundred with all the kind of the nebula, the nebula kind of gas and the, clouds, and, and it stuff. was just like what mm-hmm. the heck? It was just some kind of super psychedelic. Well, okay, so so I could I could go with you a little bit in that direction. Inside it's, was great. Inside was well, like, gritty. Yeah, because because I was going to say though awesome. the other thing that I think is so interesting about 
the visual effects and the overall design of the world in this film. And I think that the external, um, the sort of the cloudy nebula around the, the nowhere skull, I think kind of ties into this though, is there's an incredible use of, uh, pretty saturated colors in this movie. There's a lot of reds and blues and yellows and oranges and stuff that are, um, really pumped up in a way that gives the film an aesthetic and a look that is sort of the antithesis of maybe some of the kind of like the DC look where it's like, they almost have like chromophobia, you know, like they're, they're, they're tuned out to and afraid of color. And this kind of went in the other direction where it was kind of this juicy saturated palette. And I actually kind of, at least for me, like I, I thought that kind of worked because it, and maybe that's another thing that kind of reminded me a little bit of at least my memory of, uh, seeing star Wars in theaters as a uh, theaters as a kid. Like I remember as a kid, like all the pro mist filters that they used in the, um, original 77 star Wars and how, you know, you had the, the gold of the C3PO and the, sh- mm. the reflectiveness and the blues on R2D2 and kind of these really punchy colors that were also accentuated with that pro mist filter. And I think that, you know, aesthetically in this movie and in the visual effects, I kind of felt like what they were doing was they were, they were kind of re-injecting a lot of, uh, you know, there was a lot of humor, but there was also a lot of literal color right in the film. And I, and I, I don't know, I, I felt like that worked to great effect, at least to my personal taste. And, and so I can kind of get what you're saying about the kind of psychedelic component of when you first see that, um, that skull floating in space. But I kind of think in the overall context of the film though, and the design language of the film, I feel like it, it sort of works. Yeah. It just didn't for me. And it just (laughs) felt like it, well, because it just was so over the top and it was so, you know, the, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I understand that if you're in space, everything's black. There are dots in the horizon somewhere, <laughs> if there is a horizon. <laughs> just, just like, and then suddenly we're in this like. I mean, space to me just isn't this mega colorful place. Well, I think that uh, you know, I, I I'm I'm kind of listening carefully, and I think I must have had a much more psychedelic experience for the whole movie, maybe Mike, than you did, because I, I think that what what they did, and just as a theory, all right, just hypothetically, just for you to consider. I mean, if you look at Groot and you look at Rocket and you think about how much time, energy, writing, you know, fidelity of performance to, to, to bring those characters from what they are, which is uh, they're psychedelic extreme characters. I mean, they're, if I just saw a still photograph of Groot and Rocket, I would think, well, this is like a fantasy drug trip. I mean, this is the kind of stuff of psychedelic, you know, talking animals. I talked to a raccoon once in college when I dropped acid. There you go. There you go. So, but, but by the time you actually are brought to the place where you need to care, you do because you're, you're, they've, they've done a fantastic job of getting you to buy into these characters. When it came to the environmental stuff, you, you didn't have that um, that same kind of um, time and investment to make it all work. It, it was sort of like a travelogue in a weird way, and but but to Matt's point, and where I was, where I would come from a conceptual design standpoint, from from you know if I were working on a show of this kind, is 
it seemed to me relentlessly saturated, relentlessly visual and relentlessly kind of over the top with regards to a lot of the art direction decisions. I mean, even the city in the beginning is it's it's really overblown in my mind. You know, it's got it's got blue, blue water and blue, blue skies and lots of... So which of, city are we talking about? The one that he <clears throat> finds the... Orb where he goes to arrest the, where he brings the orb in the very beginning, yeah, yeah. and um, okay. and I think that there was even in the even in the prison colony, there's there's a lot of that kind of the, the bad shorthand I might say would be like the fifth element, okay, like yeah, yeah, the, that's the exactly what it's the like. aesthetic is very over the top and very colorful, and like at, for example with spacecraft, um, you know these were brilliantly colored designed to look insectoid like or have wings and you know working i remember working with john knoll who who you know can be very pragmatic and he's like well in space you just have a all you need is an engine and a shape to get inside of um you don't need colorful wings or interesting wings and all those things but what's funny is that that in this particular film they kind of did both there was little. Um, there were these really, uh, you know, exotic ships with exotic, like his ship, um, Peter Quill's ship, was like that. Um, uh, but then also you had the, um, the these Milana. kind of these kind of like balls, you know, like the just these mining vehicles that were just like basically, you know, they were like walnuts with engines, and then they had these mechanical hands. So I think they kind of kept it they kind of played loose with the aesthetic to make the scenes dynamic and to make the aesthetic interesting. And, and, um, I thought the whole movie, if I had to describe it in a nutshell, would be trippy, you know? So to me, it was sort of from that place. I'm so well, glad one, you up- one other, one other yeah. quick note though, about just the trippy colors of the nebula and stuff. One of the things that just as we're talking about it, that it made me think of that, I think, you know, maybe it's part of the Marvel universe kind of, you know, the lexicon that they're sort of developing here. But if you remember, I think it was at the end of, I don't know if it was the first or the second Thor film, the credit sequence for that. I don't, do you remember that one where it's like they fly through like endless like galaxies and nebulae? You, yeah, 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 that? yeah. And I think it, it was the first one. Yeah. And it, I mean, that sequence, I remember we talked about it on the show. That sequence, we we all kind of—I think it was Jason—was on it with us, and I remember we were we were sort of talking about how that was so cool. It was like a really just so gorgeous, like in such a mm. kind of fun ride to go on. But it too was really—it was all like Hubble kind of you know colored Hubble telescope style imagery that was done you know in a three dimensional kind of you know high speed travel capacity. And um, I think that you know maybe it kind of ties back into some of the visual language that they've already built up from the previous. Um, films in the franchise yeah can i get back to your point Ty? because i thought that the ships were remarkably good for purpose like i think it's um uh quill's ship just felt like it was more hot roddy you know fast than the sort of ship that he would fly the mining ship seemed utilitarian and i thought that the is it the dark aster the the sort of um one yeah i thought that was just a well i'd love your opinion on it but i mean as a from your perspective but I, I thought that was you know it's really hard to come up with original looking ships yeah no i agree and i and what's weird is that um that the amount of scale that they were able to give that that whole sequence where the little ships are gonna block the you know the big angry anvil mm. ship and they're able to join together and that to me was spoke of you know again it, it spoke of 
uh, my youth, you know, and the things that I would have been attracted to in Starlog magazine or in a science fiction yeah. book was like, oh, they're going to, all these ships come together and create this big net. And that stuff is really hard to pull off because it goes against everything that we know about scale and uh, and everything we know about like physics you know it really goes into a new kind of hyper real or this kind of um you know action reality but i was looking at those shots in particular when they had kind of created that golden net around the ship and it was holding itself back and it was often shot from the top and you get those amazing vistas of the of the ground below and that and these little ships that were moving in and out through the z space and it really allowed for that to have incredible scale and and, and just because I'm a sucker for spacecraft too, is that also those whatever kind of big turning mechanism that they were implying that it had some kind of strange yeah. drive or something like those massive pieces that were would kind of unwind or wind. That was just really, really inventive in a way that I respect and admire because so much you can only do so much with jets, you know, blowing fire or yep. you know, different color of jets that are you know squeezing out different kinds of. Uh, lighting effects and you and this actually had more of a physical effects quality like uh, watching a battleship you know turn i remember in titanic there's that great sequence that jim did where he starts out down in the you know uh, with a shovel yeah. of coal going into a burner into the coal fire um uh, engines and then the pistons and then you you go and you see how massive everything is and then suddenly you're moving up through and then you're outside and the ship is accelerating and you're kind of going oh there's a whole reality to you know, to this technology that I'm witnessing. And there was something maybe not as thoroughly um, uh, realized, but there was a sense of systems operating and these big plates causing effects on the ship. And then they turn up the power and, you know, the way that the thing disassembled, it was, it was, it was really great stuff. But uh, again, for me, I think it was, it was hyper real. It was like surrealist science fiction. It was, it was, I bought into it because it was so, extreme in its in its delivery it was there wasn't much shy about that stuff you know it was you had to kind of go with it or there was nowhere to go i, I thought it was remarkable because as you say it had the battleship uh sentiment and because it wasn't just uh let's take something that we're kind of used to well i mean even an aircraft carrier but um, it had that it's not what we're used to uh, yet I buy it. Like it's very easy to make something that looks kind of like a version of a plane and you're kind of used to that flying because it has wings and foils and it's all kind of what we expect. Yeah, I thought that was a, a really inventive looking thing and it, it, it it's, I don't know, there's something about a design where you think that there's more going on there that if I was to have it explained, it would somehow make sense because it looks like it would have a logic that would make sense that I love in design. If somebody is art directing or designing a ship and it looks like, yeah, I don't know what the logic is, but I reckon there is a logic. And if you could sit the guy down that designed it, he'd be able to explain it. That's kind of my favorite uh, thing of all. And yeah, I thought that was uh, was really well done. I mean, look, it's it's rendered well, it's produced well, um, but yeah, it was a it was a cracker. I think too, like from the effects point of view, that big battle sequence at the end of the film, one of the things that's so impressive about it, uh, I, I really like the whole sequence. I thought overall the, um, what they were able to do in terms of the visuals was so strong in part from what 
uh, Ty was saying too, like that a lot of it takes place at this really high altitude where, you know, you've got all these really great sort of cumulonimbus kind of clouds and you've got this, um, view of the, uh, the landscape, you know, kind of at a distance down below. And then you get the contrails coming off of the ships as well as, um, some really great, uh, uh, compositing work as well in the film where, there's a couple shots in particular, one that I've seen a still of a number of places online. Um, and it's of the, uh, Chris Pratt character, uh, flying, I think in his ship and, or maybe in a ship, but it's like bright daylight outside. And, uh, you know, he's in the cockpit kind of doing his thing and it's integrated into sort of the extension of the digital ship and then the digital background. And it's just, the lighting is totally dead on. It's the shadows are perfect. Like it, it totally looks real. It's like the antithesis of the thing that we talk about sometimes on the show of the, yep. uh, you know, the car, the driving down the road. And it's just so well executed on, uh, so many levels. And I think that happens uh, over and over again throughout that, um, in battle sequence because it's daylight. And I think that's always been sort of, well, not so much, uh, in the, maybe in the last, you know, five or six years, but for a long time doing stuff like that in daylight was really difficult to achieve and make it look good. And, you know, I think they really nail it in this, in this. Yeah. Film. MPC did a brilliant job, um, with that end sequence. I think they really, um, yeah, did a great job. Can I swing us back to the prison break? Can I um, make one last point oh, sorry, on yes, this? Sure. Just because I think it's it's just it's a kind of perfect dovetail between Mike what you were saying and Matt what what you just said is that uh, the, the 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 idea that Mike was speaking of of some kind of larger internal logic and one thing I thought uh, that you just mentioned Matt the the cockpits is I thought that the the variety and the fidelity of the interior of the ships, the things that you did get to see, had a very high um, registration with the exterior. So, so that when you went from like a shot of the ship through the cockpit into the inner, you know, um, compartments, it did really feel like really well integrated and really well designed in a in a kind of totality. So you, you didn't get that feeling, which oftentimes was a, a part of my youth in television science fiction from the primarily the 70s and early 80s, where you just had to believe that the set was inside of the the the, the ship. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, Star Wars. Funny, I hadn't really thought of it till Matt was just speaking. You know, one of the things that George did that was very simple and Joe and company is they created really memorable interior shots like the Millennium Falcon, you know, that over the shoulder where you see the cockpit yep. and, and you, and you can identify that, that logic from the exterior. And so it, you kind of integrates the interior set piece with the exterior effects piece really well. Same with the X-Wing fighters. And I had, that was working very well in this as well, you know, where you saw it and, um, you could, you could, your intellect, your subconscious would go, yeah, I buy that. I think those things work out. I mean, that was my criticism of Star Trek for a long time, which is there was a bridge and there was a ship and there were engine rooms and things, but I had no relationship between those and the exterior of the ship. I mean, it got a lot better in later years, but for a while there, it was like, okay, I think the bridge is on top somewhere, but that's about it. Um, and I know those nacelles are the engines, but everything else, I don't know where it's fitting. I don't know where these rooms are that they're staying in or what they're doing. It was all just kind of like a completely different thing. And there'd be a window and there'd be, you know, sort of no, no, you're right. In the Millennium Falcon, you sort of felt like, oh, well, that's all fit for purpose. And I can kind of make logic of it in my own head. Or at least if I wanted to sit down and draw a map, I figured I could come up with something that would make sense. 
Um, and yeah, and and when they went to jump in to to shoot the, um, uh, you know, the attacking ships, and they looked down at each other as the, you know, good one, kid. It, it all felt like yeah, well, that was kind of a cramped space, and you know, it was all at either ends facing other ways because obviously you'd want to you know cover the top and the bottom of the ship and you know it was three-dimensional not just uh, mm-hmm. a lot of that stuff can be very one-dimensional in fact that was my huge criticism was it star trek two or three the original wrath of khan when his entire tactic for winning was just to think three-dimensionally and go down and let him fly over the top i mean it was just you know every spaceship has to face every other spaceship in space orientated the same way and you can only shoot someone if you can see them kind of ghastly logic um so I was going to shift gears to some of the environment work and in particular I was going to start with the prison breakout. I think it was one of the funniest or had some of the funniest um, aspects in it from the moment they arrived till till they leave. I thought that was a hoot of a ride. I didn't mind it was contained inside a set. I didn't need to see outside. It was exactly what a prison should feel like in my opinion. But everything from the uh, I need that man's um, leg to uh, I need his eyeball kind of stuff. It was just funny. The... You know, you, I didn't know what he was doing when they were in the thing and they, they're firing at the glass. You know, it seemed improbable they were going to get out, but they did. Um, I thought it was super well executed, but it obviously had a lot of visual effects. It just didn't feel effectsy to me. What about you guys? Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, I think that, you know, they it looked like they spent, you know, a good chunk of change building a pretty massive uh, set space for a lot of the action to take place in and then some digital extensions. And of course you've got Groot and Rocket in there, um, you know, rendered out. Um, But I thought too, uh, some of the other things that really worked well in that sequence um, was, you know, sort of the introduction we get to um, the Dave Bautista right? The Drax character. And I think that, you know, he becomes, I was going <laughs> to just not quite an effects thing, but something that was worth mentioning. I think, you know, he becomes really kind of a fun character too, and his oh, sort yeah. of inability to grasp and understand, you know, metaphor or irony or <laughs> any kind of jokes, like his sort of literal interpretation of, uh, of the communication between the rest of the characters, uh, provides for a lot of great, um, interaction. But I thought that the, um, you know, the primary, uh, sort of, you know, the big hero shot that is in one of the early trailers too, where you see Rocket um, riding sort of on Groot's shoulder, firing a machine gun, you know, it's like, it's so over the top. It's like completely ridiculous, but again, and it's shot, I think at a, you know, a high frame rate, right? So it's played back to look uh, slow motion and um, it's just such a great um, sequence, but that holy uh, sort of melding together of that team in that environment where they're, you know, they're all like, as he says, right, we're all a bunch of losers, you know, that we've lost something or whatever, you know, (laughs) makes that gag. I think, uh, yeah, no, it was, it was a cool, um, a cool space. Does anyone know if his, his tattoos and stuff were just makeup? It must've been digitally um, added to, right? Because I thought his skin was great. I didn't see it. I mean, I, I'm guessing that he had a suit on, and then they digitally maybe. There was, there's in, a yeah. I think I read in one of the notes that Lola Effects, I think, did some fix up on it digitally. I'm assuming, but I I think it was. It looked to me like it was uh, a a really f- well done, you know, prosthetics. I mean, that's what I took it to be. It, it was well done, though, wasn't it? I mean, I think it was well done. It was yeah. uh, you know very believable in terms of. Uh, 
being, you know, I mean, maybe, I mean, look, Lola, I think I've once said on, on air that I drink their bathwater. I think they just do spectacularly good work, but it would make sense that they had something on him in terms of makeup and then um, that they uh, enhanced it because I just think that uh, he was just incredible. Um, in fact, I'm, look, I've just looked it up as we were speaking and apparently, um, uh, yeah, it was special effects makeup that um, that he had on him. And, and it worked really, really well because he looked so evil that when he was like so sincere, he was just so sweet. Uh, yeah. Apparently he was in makeup for like five hours. Okay, that's pretty, that's pretty hardcore. Yeah, <laughs> and I think also this is another case where, um, you know, the design was very unique. I mean, it, it's, it felt kind of, it felt familiar in as much as it was, was it like, was it a, a part of his physiology or was it like a tattoo or, you know, was it like scarification? It, you got a sense that it was designed but at the same time, it also was a manifestation of the character. So it it, it kind of brought a lot of um, um, individuality that played very strongly, um, you know, like a well-designed suit of armor would or something like that. And um, and hats off to the way that they were able to kind of ride the the line, you know, to, to have it be that interesting and, and kind of familiar at the same time. So just to give credit, David White was, I think, the uh, special effects makeup guy. And uh, they actually built... You know, they've seen those plastic molds that they use for faces, for putting dots on faces to get them consistently in the same place on someone's face. They had entire body uh, ones of those with perforated holes in it. And so they would sit these body... Um, I'm going to say like sh- plastic moldings over the top of himself, of himself, but with it, there were these dots. And when they would airbrush through the dots, that would give the, the lineup point. So between each day, you'd always have the tattoo effects at the same place because you effectively had a body um, markings as to where everything went. And then he would just be there for hours getting this entire elaborate um, stuff put on him. And uh, man, that's... You know, you just got to admire that kind of uh, artistry because that, I think at the, at the best they ever got it down to was uh, just under three hours. But yeah, five hours in a makeup chair, good Lord. But yeah, it was great. It was really, really good. Um, so uh, c- can I go back to the environments because I sort of was uh, talking about that a bit. So I, I liked the prison. I liked the whole breakout sequence of the prison. I thought it was um, was pretty effective. Was there any other environments that you guys liked uh, in particular, like the original... Um, uh, planet that he lands on to steal the orb or uh, the end planet just in terms of environment work? Yeah, I mean, I think the end planet, the Xandar or whatever, right, where the big battle Singapore. takes place. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's so... I, I just think that one really stands out for me in terms of the achievement uh, of the overall aesthetics, whether it's, you know, from the ground looking up at the big, you know, the dark aster ship or whatever, or if you're sort of above looking down, you know, the all the atmospherics, everything that MPC kind of threw into that, I think is really successful. And then, you know, the one thing about probably the, um, the opening sequence, uh, where he's going to steal the orb, I think the thing that, uh, really stood out to in that sequence in particular to me was maybe less so, um, the environments themselves, although I think they were, you know, they were pretty interesting. I mean, it was a, it was just such a desolate kind of dark, uh, world. There wasn't a whole lot to see, but it's a great introduction um, to that character and to his, uh, I think there's that sequence right where he's, he's, um, he's sort of singing and dancing as he approaches that yes. uh, base. And he, he even picks up like some little, almost like a, like a 
you know, an alien rat or something, and he's singing into it like it's a microphone. That is hysterically you know, funny. Like, it's just so ridiculous. But at the same time, too, it kind of sets you up for tonally and emotionally kind of the 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 psychological kind of space that you kind of want to be in for the rest of this uh, picture. And so, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think it was, it was effective. I think uh, rather than that opening planet, I think, you know, the, I think the prison and uh, Xandar for the battle was really cool. I didn't really think that the Xandar, uh, the Glenn Close planet, when they were inside uh, some of the sets, you know, like in yep. the, I don't know what it was called, like the the hologram room, or yeah, whatever. Like I, the the hologram was cool, but the set itself, I thought, was just it just felt pretty generic. There wasn't anything super special about it. But I thought the hologram was kind of neat, which was really just almost you know, so realistically rendered, it was almost just an extension of what you wind up seeing outside. So Ty, for you, any environment work? Yeah, that, uh... I, I thought that I actually, you know, having had those assignments to like try to reinvent or, you know, try to revisit um, the science fiction environments and bring something new is that I thought in the very opening that, that they actually played up this idea of some kind of kind of geysers you know that were like they were clearly not volcanoes but they were throwing up these um big ejections of water right or big ejections of fluids and i kind of activated those scenes um and then i think they even play a gag with um you know his ship getting caught in it or something like that which i think was nice to kind of integrate the um you know integrate something that's that's phenomenal phenomenological right you know something that that's actually much like we were talking with the spacecraft like there's something going on there's it has its own um you know play tectonics or its own kind of reality to it so i thought that was kind of cool and i would agree also that that the uh glenn close city whatever that was um it almost was like a nod to me and maybe i see too much of this stuff but there were several moments where i thought it, they were nods to actually like 70s science fiction i mean clearly you know the sort music, of logan's run kind of yeah logan's run or or rollerball you know yeah. or there, where there's a certain kind of well in the future everything's going to be you know weird angles and clean surfaces and it it kind of has a you know, it's a little bit what Neil was playing around with, even on Elysium. There was this kind of aesthetic that had to do with a certain view of the future that really grew out of the 70s and those kind of what was not happening in regular or what was not happening in in architecture where we're like, we'll do it in a different way because our architecture looks this way and, you know, we'll just make it twisted in a new way and there really wasn't that much logic to it other than it was different and so i got a whiff of that i would also say that on that same note with a lot of the kind of pedestrians that you saw that were clearly meant to be from different races different intergalactic you know species that a great number of them were you know kind of straight up 70s science fiction um characters you know you know colored skin you know um a little bit of face application makeup not a lot of you know um um you know kind of trying to reinvent the 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 bipedal anatomy but more or less just spraying it a new color and i still i felt that that stuff worked as well especially in the crowd scenes it was like i understood that that i know that world you know i know that that place it it felt familiar in that kind of like 
you know, retro science fiction. And there was a retro angle to this whole thing. So to me, it was just really a lot of fun. And I kept coming back to those kind of nods and, and getting them. At least I, you know, I'd like to talk to somebody who, you know, maybe was 14 and see what they took from some of that stuff. But um, yeah, I found it, I found it charming. I, I got the Logan's Run thing when you said it, not, not until you articulated mm-hmm. it, from the uh, very early, I'm going to say chase, but it's kind of chase um, three-way kind of thing that's going on as they're trying to get the orb from each other. It was a very slapsticky kind of affair, but that sort of uh, L.A. mall on... Yeah, uh, fountains. It's always yeah, fountains. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, speaking of which, though, in terms of environments, the other really great environment, I think, that we sort of talked about a little bit is is nowhere, right? The inside the space of the skull, when you see um, uh, there's there's a sequence of the, uh, whatever it is, the Milano, right? His, his ship, which yeah. I just think it's kind of funny. It's called the Milano because they said that uh, the director said that Jason Quill's character's childhood crush in the 80s was Alyssa Milano so he calls his ship the Milano which I thought was kind of funny but um anyway so uh but that environment where you sort of see there's a uh, one shot in particular that kind of uh remember of you're sort of looking down on the ship from above as it's flying through that space and environment and then, of course we see it more uh, in detail later too with the what we were talking about before those kind of worker pod sort of insect kind of um, ships. But I think what was kind of cool about that environment as well, too, is it was reminiscent in a way to me of, it, it reminded me initially of um, the, what is it called? Coruscant or Coruscant or whatever, the the big city planet in the uh, Star Wars prequels. Right. Yep. And it kind of was reminiscent of that in terms of the level of geometry and the level of detail like so you know they're going in they're modeling uh, all these different elements uh in 3d and some in 2d i'm sure and then you know assembling this kind of large real cacophony of a space that has so much volume like they're giving all this depth cueing and stuff like that so it's getting a really um articulated space but it's a little bit junkier you know than the kind of things that you maybe saw in the the Star Wars universe, uh, or, or at least in the Star Wars prequel universe. And I thought that was really um, used to great effect as well. It was sort of in contrast to the the Xandar world of the, what were you calling it, Mike Singapore or something, right? Where it's like everything's so clean, you know, it's the, the Disneyland with a death penalty or whatever that kind of vibe. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I thought that that was Disneyland the other... The death penalty. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, go on. <laughs> but that, that was the other kind of... Um, you know, uh, environment anyway, that I think really stood out, uh, for me. So a couple of, uh, elephants in the room, I think we need to tackle, uh, as we finish up the show. And I have three that we just can't get past. The first is in, in, uh, every respect underlining what you guys said about this being like a seventies, marvelous, really cool film. I loved the fact that there were really interesting things in the cages uh, inside the collector's place that we would kind of see if we were lucky and, uh, and you know, then later people would say, did you see that that was, you know, the director's character that he had from an earlier film kind of thing? I mean, that is obviously something for fans, but by the same token, if you are a fan, you love that stuff. Don't you sure. agree, Ty? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- that whole kind of... Um being able to go back and revisit those uh, a picture like that and have people tell you new stuff you know and just you bring it up over a beer or something and it's very likely you'll walk away and go oh you know I'm going to have to go check that out or go look at that um, piece I remember that 
you know, back when, when in the 70s when Close Encounters came out, I think that on the mothership model, they had gl they had glued, you know, the model builders had glued like uh, C-3PO or R2-D2 or some Star Wars kind of characters. And of course, in the film, you, there's no possible way you could see it. You could only see it in like, uh, you know, a production still of the model. But, you know, that caused that little insider buzz. And you could say, uh, did you know that R2-D2 is uh, in there or whatever? Yeah. And this had that same vibe. And also, I think contextually, um, you know, what did the, the cantina scene? It's like, oh, it's going to yeah. be this cantina scene where you, you just you, you hear it discussed. You know, somebody says, well, it'll be like this, this little, you know, uh, out of the, out in the nowhere land where all the bad bad guys from all these planets hang out, and you wanted to see that, you know, and you're ready for it. And you know, Del Toro did it a bit in Hellboy Two with like the troll market. You know, it's like, well, there's going to be all these supernatural characters that go to this thing, and that the the idea of collecting animals or an intergalactic zoo, some kind of place where you know everything is going to be in you know in cages. So your part of your mind is. Or your eyes are like busily looking like, oh, that would be so cool to visit a place like that. So it, it, it kind of delivers both on a conceptual point, you know, on a conceptual level. But then also I think what they chose to put in there was, you know, it, it kind of kept the gag alive long enough for you to appreciate it in a sense. I just thought it was it was fun. And it was that's, you know, uh, what this teenage fun. Like it's the kind of stuff that you like when you're into this stuff and you can you know really pick it apart with your mates afterwards at school i mean i remember that as just being a you know tremendously fun thing um okay the second elephant in the room for me is uh one that i'm certainly not original in pointing out but uh kind of good quality batteries uh in that walkman <laughs> yeah right he had those um what do you call those those uh it's the um, the Duracell, like the super long life, uh... super <laughs> long life batteries. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, hey, that's some super space technology going on in that thing. Yeah, there were lots of popular culture references <laughs> that I thought were great in this, and um, uh, yeah, you know, one one thing that actually just uh, a quick side note, one thing that kind of pops to mind when we're talking about this uh, this film, the aesthetics of the film, and kind of having some of that sort of, you know, seventies science fiction vibe. I think you see a lot of that kind of actually bubbling to the surface, uh, really in the last couple of years and, um, in, in both film and in games too. And I think maybe part of it is that, you know, a lot of sort of our, um, you know, peers, uh, if you will, uh, are, you know, the people who are now, uh, coming into their own and are out there kind of making these creative decisions and choices and, and, uh, hearkening back to the things that they remember from their youth, whether it was from, you know, Omni magazine or cinema fantastique or whatever it might've been where they were seeing some of this really interesting artwork, but it made me think even of, um, the, the big game that was the big buzz at, uh, E3, this uh, last year, which was the No Man's Sky, which has a real uh, kind of 70s sci-fi concept art kind of aesthetic as well. So just, just yeah, on that note, uh, I think you're right, man. But I, I think another thing is that it, there's been enough time now. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's mm -hmm. far enough in the past. Mm, it's that, like the music. It, it, it yeah. lives again. Yeah, it's far, yeah, yeah. Enough, it's far enough back that it comes with a certain kind of resonance, right? And and it's kind of ripe for revisiting because you you give it a sense of 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 what that time you know was about, but but you're actually doing it at a much 
uh, a, a much higher level of uh, presentation. So, so it's it's more of a like an essence or a, a flavor than it is the central means. Um, it, this movie, yeah, that's, th- yeah. I, I, no, I was just thinking that's absolutely right because, in a sense, I think Chris Pratt does a great Indiana kind of Han Solo thing without being a direct Han Solo thing. It's just totally. It's the same kind of vibe, but completely not just. Hey, we've heard those jokes before, and I can tell you where. There's a little Marty Mc, Marty McFly in there too, I think. Well, there's yeah. a little there's a little Buck Rogers too. I mean, not I'm talking the TV show. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the yeah. weird yeah. costumes and uh, you know, <laughs> kind of the the strange like decision making of the costumes and the colors and putting a big cassette deck right in the center of you know, um, you know of the of the of his bedroom, you know, without any you know without any real concern about it. It's sort of like. I remember, I think it was one of the early Star Trek movies that Spock had, and one of those infinity mirrors on the wall that you could buy down at, uh, you know, yep. at the local head shop, right? And then there it was. It was no even an attempt to cover it up. It's just right there on the wall. And some of that kind of clunkiness is sort of charming now, and it was not charming back then, you know? Yeah. So that's sure. that time piece again. Yes, and the Russian dog, um, and you know all those references are just kind of fun and uh, and terrific. As is the I don't know who the heck expects young kids to get all the Kevin Bacon kind of uh, references. It was Kevin Bacon, right? Yeah, it was. <laughs> and yeah, the, uh, footloose, the yeah. footloose reference. I mean, that's like what nineteen eighty four, eighty five. I mean, you know, that's like really <laughs> like that. There's the central gag that he's going to refer to. You know, I have to say, and it's weird just to even bring that up, but. Um, when I was, uh, you know, I'd say in the mid-90s, I, there was a younger crop. In fact, it, it might have been some of Matt's uh, cohorts from from uh, his time at ILM. But I was shocked at how rabid um, the young uh, art directors and the young uh, interns were about Footloose. I mean, I thought Footloose was just an absolute throwaway movie. I saw it when it came yeah, out. Yeah, me too. I saw it on I didn't VHS. Even see it. Well, it's it's to to a large segment. You didn't of, have the uh, soundtrack. Like, to a large segment <laughs> yeah. of people, apparently. Saturday night, I go and tip buckets of water on my head and sing around in my underwear. Yeah, no, that's not me, Matt. Sorry. <laughs> no, man, but I had no idea how popular that movie was. I mean, Actually, was, is that Footloose or is that the other one? Footloose. I was confused that. Footloose. No, there's Footloose, Footloose is the one, one with like Kenny Loggins and you're Footloose thinking of was the um, one with Flashdance. Flashdance yeah, flash is what I'm thinking of. Yeah, those that. two were like in the same place for me. Yeah, but no, yeah. they're I mean, in the I part of the video section I don't go. The drive-in there. <laughs> no, thank you. No, no. I would, I would literally say I would prefer to watch. Oh, um, the, d- uh, the Dark Knight trilogy. No, oh. I love the Dark Knight trilogy. <laughs> no, I know. Just Atom Wait, Buckaroo Banzai. You got to admit there might have been a little Buckaroo ah. Banzai in there too. Oh, that's a good Buckaroo Banzai. Is still kind of funny though. Okay. Like um, anyway. Yes. So anyway. Uh, okay. And the other huge one, Matt, we have to talk about is Howard mm. the Duck. Oh yeah. Well, you know that's a funny uh, bit, I guess. In that uh, I I do remember. It's funny. That's the same rough, roughly the same time, probably as Footloose and Flashdance. That uh, nineteen eighty six. George Lucas and Mega uh, Flop, the, yeah, and his uh, cohorts. The what was it? The Hyucks or Hyucks or whatever those characters were that helped him make that movie. Um, they, uh, yeah, they made their hair Howard the Duck with uh, Leah Thompson and uh, a really bad '80s soundtrack. And 
it was a mega flop for good reason. But it's interesting to see uh, the reinsertion of the character in a kind of a more um, kind of for lack of a better word, a more sort of R-rated kind of presentation of Howard the Duck, more maybe in the way that people who, I've never been a reader of the comic, but from what I know of the comic book character, he was, I think, a much more um, kind of toxic and acerbic uh, sort of character than he was uh, as portrayed in the 80s adaptation of the Howard the Duck story. And I think, uh, you know, they're kind of... um, playing yeah, was, that kind of component up again yeah. in this, you know, and I could see, you know, if it, it's a weird one, you know, I mean, I could, but I could see a possibility of somewhere down the road, a Howard the Duck movie. Um, but that was made in a way that was like conscious of the failure of the original and that had like, not the fun kind of goofiness of guardians of the galaxy, although it might have some of that, but maybe had a more, almost a more, um, uh, like a more toxic kind of more aggressive kind of, um, sense of humor in a way, almost more like a who framed Roger rabbit, but even a little darker than that. Like you the know? fight club version of it. Yeah. Like I could kind of see, maybe there's an audience for that. I don't know. Like it would, it would be a, I don't here's, know that I'd here's be a real, personally interested. Here's a real but. piece of uh, – I've got two pieces of trivia that have been handed to me by my able research assistant. Firstly, in 1978, apparently Disney sued Marvel over copyright infringement claiming that How the Duck looked too similar to Donald Duck. Hmm. Um, of course, uh, they now own Marvel. Um, the other piece of trivia that I've been handed is that, uh, in fact, having the um, the uh, cosmonaut, the Russian dog – um, in wasn't just them being cute. It was, in fact, uh, a central part of the comic books, and he's a psychic dog and features very strongly, and I should have known that, and I apologize. <laughs> yeah, in fact, he runs the headquarters of Nowhere, I believe, according to this note, and he's on constant bad terms with Rocket, and uh, and I apologize to, uh, <laughs> to missing that. Um, but yes, for those of you that are fans of the comic book, I've often said we tend to judge these things in isolation because uh, we tend to judge the film, not the, uh, the pedigree, but there you go. Hey, um, so Guardians of the Galaxy 2, pretty much a dead cert, um, though I would say probably 2 and 3 is a dead cert given the kind of box office reception. This is, film has gone really well, hasn't it? At the, uh, uh, you yeah, it's, know, ama- it's amazing how, I mean, I think the level of success it's had, although once I saw it, like, I, I, I mean... Now, having sort of seen the film, I'm not surprised. Like, I'm my wife and son and I were talking just the other day. We were like, oh, we should go see that one more time while it's still in theaters. And the three of us to actually go, all three of us, and buy another set of tickets to go see a movie a second time like, that's that's pretty unheard of in my household. So, um, 170 million to make it. Uh, opening weekend made about 94 million. These are all US numbers. Um, it's done about almost 500 million worldwide, 250 million in the US. That's interesting, isn't it? Almost double outside the US as in the US, though it's a big success in the US. It and uh, Turtles have really um, rained havoc on those films that have come around it, like uh, the uh, Sin City sequel, which got annihilated by it at the box office. Um, yeah. Do we want to see any crossover between this Marvel universe? Uh, apparently, there was a rumor that Iron Man was going to have a cameo in this. Would we, would we be crossing the beams to see anyone from here connect up with anyone in the Avengers universe? 
I mean, I think that what's what this shows me, and I've kind of been consistently, you know, pleased and surprised, is that if the writing is good, and if the if the if the moment is ripe, and and it, there's a certain kind of um, like pleasurable logic or or if or if the play you know if it plays in some kind of provocative informative ways i think you can do anything in this place i mean i think that we're at a place where all these characters could slip back and forth without too much negative there's the i think there's a high potential for error but but you know it seemed to be pulling it off so Ty, let me let me throw this at you which i read a book a while ago it was uh terrific but it was um in an era that it uh, said, you know, theatre was the writer's medium. You go and see a Shakespeare play. TV was the producer's medium because it's, you know, um, Shonda makes a bunch of TV shows and we care about the producer, not the directors of the episodes. And then film was a director's medium. You wanted to see a Spielberg film because it was directed by Spielberg. Has Marvel changed that? Is this a James Gunn film or is this a Marvel film? Does it... Does the director become a director for hire? Because let's face it, Thor changed directors between one and two and, and uh, you know, it didn't seem to cause... I mean, it's uh, not the case with Iron Man 1 and 2, but mostly the directors come and go for just a film. Uh, are the directors becoming directors for hire now? And you said it was writing that was making this work. Um, is film becoming more of a writer's or a producer's medium, less of a director's medium? Well, I, I my, my own personal belief is that that like if you you look at the auteur theory of filmmaking that really you know Francis or Francis Truffaut put forward and you think about Hitchcock and you think about Francis Coppola I mean yes it's it's valid that there are Kubricks there are these people that 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 are forging a cinema from the in from a very specific point like they're they're they are the core creative force behind film but but if you look at the larger history of film there's always been a variety of players in that universe and you could say westerns for an example when they were very popular did westerns you know it was actually the 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 notions of those myths the 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 locale and the characters and those templates and and um, those iconic characters that that were what the audiences cared about they didn't necessarily care that deeply about the director's vision and and i think that we've been moving well wouldn't we say john ford was well the... john ford is one director i mean I, that's why i'm saying is you can look at any genre and you can look at any aspect of film but if you actually go back and do a count of how many westerns were made if you start to include saturday morning serial westerns and uh, just the kind of westerns that came and went that no one really paid that much attention to. There's, I think there's always been a, a large number of films that were driven by the studio. And the studio, um, you know, put the team together and they, they brought the director in sometimes at the last minute. And, um, <clears throat> you know, lots of films are start out as scripts and producers before the director enters into the picture. So... Um, I don't know that I would totally concur that 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 the that the original premise was correct. I think it's, I think that there's a. I think that from my perspective, I want to support and promote directors as auteurs. So I'm I'm somebody who follows P. T. Anderson. I'm somebody that follows you know um, these kind of unique visionary filmmakers. But I do like films that are just well executed and oftentimes. I'll have to really remember to like, oh yeah, like, you know, make sure you know who the writer was and who the director was because 
I'm not necessarily seeing a visionary director. I'm seeing a quality presentation. So um, I don't know. I don't know the answer. But, uh, you know, to me right now, I think that what, given the, the initial, you know, kind of logic, um, I think television is becoming more and more the media of writers. Um, and I think that um, producers are probably, you know, in, in Hollywood right now, are, they, they, we're seeing a, a whole um, series of major blockbuster pictures that are really about the, the studio, the budget, the producers and the, that team. And um, who knows what the future will be. But I think it's always an ebb and flow for my two cents. Matt, are we entering a period of studio films again, like the golden era where... Um because James Gunn, if you look on IMDb Pro, known for, previously to Guardians, it was known for Scooby-Doo. Yeah, um, super, and I think, was his other I, uh, I totally agree with the uh, you know following directors thing. I mean, personally, I'll go and see anything that Richard Curtis or Luc Besson directs, just to give two left-of-field examples. But Guardians is a Marvel studio well, film? Yeah, I think it's, a, I think it's though... Uh, I guess I would I would sort of split hairs. Maybe maybe this is sort of what you were saying, Ty. Too I don't know, but I I would, I would sort of say it differently. I guess in that, you know, I too am, I would say I'm a fan of the auteur uh, theory of cinema. Um, I think my favorite films tend to have that kind of um, signature to them. However, I do think that um, at least for the better part of the last ten maybe 15 on the outside years, we've really entered into an era, at least in the Hollywood um, cinemas, not entirely, but for the most part into an era of the big studio tentpole picture. Right. And so the, the Marvel or the DC or the, um, you know, star Wars or whatever it might be, the, or transformers or who knows what, the franchise, you know, the, the big juggernaut franchise that you can build and create, um, is something that seems to be where most of the money is being spent in, in Hollywood terms anyway, because, you know, they're competing with, you know, video games. And like Ty was saying, sort of all the kind of great uh, golden age of, you know, dramatic serial television that you can sort of watch uh, in the comfort of your own home these days. It's sort of what the independent cinema was maybe in the 1990, early 1990s, late 1980s. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's sort of a different beast in a way. It's a bit of a different creature. And then that being said, I do think that, you know, Marvel made a great choice in the first Iron Man. They chose John Favreau to direct it. Hmm. And I think they probably had a great script and, but I think, you know, Favreau's, you know, a pretty forceful, uh, filmmaker and I think, uh, but also a very collaborative guy. I'm sure he weighed in and let people know, you know, what he thought was going to work. Um, he fought really hard to get, uh, Robert Downey Jr. cast in that role from everything I read. Um, and, you know, I think he set, he helped set the tone, you know, he's, he helped set a very significant kind of tone for success. Um, and maybe there's something to be said, uh, in that it's a, it really is, I mean, it's not to sound too hokey and cliche about it, but it, it is a truly collaborative endeavor, especially when you're making a movie, you know, with a budget of, what did you say it was? A hundred and something million dollars, you know, unless you're Jim Cameron, uh, I don't know that you're going to get, you know, carte blanche to go and do whatever you want. There's going to be a lot of, uh, collaborative, uh, engagement. And I'm sure even a guy like Cameron, I mean, you know, a smart filmmaker is going to recognize that that's, uh, 
sometimes where the greatest I, I think, successes come from. Yeah, so no, I, I think I think it's $170 million, and I think if you're given $170 million in your Jim Cameron, you have a hell of a lot more say than $170 million given to James and Gunn. And your James Gunn, yeah. No, but I, I would, I'd agree. I, I, and, I would and also look at the say, controversy around Ant-Man and the replacement yeah. of the director on Ant-Man, which is the next Marvel you know, character that we haven't seen or heard of yet, and that's been kind of dicey. They replaced, uh, what's-his-face, um, the guy from... Uh, yeah. But just to back up Ty's point, it isn't it isn't new because I think this was the same thing that happened with the Bond films. I think for a while there, it didn't really it didn't not that it didn't matter who the director was, but a Bond film wasn't a Bond film because of the director. It was because of the studio and the mechanism that put it together. And the actor, so but I me. do think, and the actor, yeah. But I do think a good director on set, you know, like, I mean, I think part of what makes this film work, you know, yeah, it's the performances, it's the writing, it's the cinematography, it's definitely the visual effects. But I mean, I think I I would have, I would venture to guess that, you know, James Gunn is there making certain choices, certain decisions, um, you know, approaching it with a certain kind of sense of humor that, that is allowing things to function and click and work. And, and that I just can't see Marvel and their reputation um, and their juggernaut status, giving James Gunn a hundred and seventy million dollar check and say, "Hey, you know, show us first cut when you feel like you've got it." Oh, in I the way that I would not. expect, yeah. uh, you know, Cameron to be not just given first cut but second cut, and if it's all right, could we see the film Final sometime cut. before it comes out, please? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah just I think I think there's only other one other, and I don't know whether this even is meaningful in any way, but it, it, I think it's something I've witnessed. And I think I remember it first seeing it on either the Flintstones or Casper is, you know, sometimes there's every reason that a studio is making a picture. I mean, you know, there's like, it, it takes on a power of its own and it, and it becomes this inevitability. It feels like an inevitability and they tend to be, you know, like tied up with, with very powerful people, you know, powerful writers, powerful producers, powerful actors, and lots of expenditure from the studio side. And I think it takes a certain kind of confidence um, uh, for a director, especially a young, youngish director or a director who has maybe a limited number of pictures. Um, it takes a certain kind of confidence and a certain kind of cleverness and awareness to actually sign up for that uh, for that duty because these pictures um, are grueling um, you know and they're going to balance between trying to work to better their careers to display the very most the, the most prowess they have as a visionary the the the, the, the greatest um, showcase for their skills and the whole while they're going to be accountable to a select group of people that are going to have very strong opinions. And so it's interesting that, uh, you know, under those circumstances, you can still see um, the deafness of the production, the timing in this picture, you know, editorial timing, the way that Groot um, would, the the comedic timing, and I know the editorial and all these things had to be aware, but certainly the director had to create those pregnant moments for, those jokes to really um, swing in and home. So I I find it very interesting to see people sign up for that and and to know that they work two years nonstop on a you know picture. I was thinking too, Mike. Uh, just if I could, I was thinking too. Uh, you know, 
Another good example, though, would be Gareth Edwards stepping in uh, to work on, you know, a franchise, the Toho Godzilla franchise. And, you know, I I think, and you could probably speak better to this, Mike, than I could, but, you know, I think uh, from what I understand, anyway, Gareth, uh, his signature is all over that movie. I, I think that in the case of Godzilla, um, it wasn't an established machine like Marvel that said, we know how to make this successful Godzilla film. We've done it for the last six films in a row. We've made several billion dollars right, left and center. So, so you know, by all means, we want you to direct this, but, you know, we're also batting an astonishingly high batting average. And so with that in Hollywood comes, you know, an immense amount of power. So I think to a certain extent, and I'm now conjecturing, that Gareth had more influence over the look and feel of Godzilla than the director would have in a role such as a Guardians film. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's just purely my personal opinion. Can I also say one other thing? And we don't give these people enough credit. I actually think, because one of you two just mentioned the timing and the pregnant pauses and stuff, I think the editing of this film was just first rate. I'd love to see these guys up for an Oscar for editing. I really thought this was cut well. There was was just a clarity to the editing and a, a rhythmic pacing that was both action and comedy. And I never got confused and I always felt like it was uh, it was cutting really, really well. Did you guys, I mean, maybe you don't notice the editing, but it's just, it felt to me like a really well cut film. Oh, I'd agree. I thought it was, it felt really tight. You know, yeah, throughout. really tight. Like, and it was yeah. like, what, two hours long, right? I mean, it was at least two hours, two hours and long. one minute, I think, yeah. And it didn't feel at all like it got weighed down, nor did it feel kind of predictable in its editing. It wasn't a sort of a... Mm-mm. You know, wide cut in for the close-ups. Uh, speaking kind of, thing. of speaking of unpredictable, the one thing I did want to mention that is just was probably the for me the the cherry on top of the Sunday in this movie was I can't think of another film I've ever seen in my life where the hero and the bad guy finally face off mano y mano, and the hero engages in a ridiculous like bout of dancing. I just thought that was so hilarious. It's probably one of my favorite moments in the whole picture. I really just, uh, it just set off the whole thing in a way that I thought was just so genius. Like to get to that moment that we're so used to being ready to see that kind of face off. And then of course they do sort of have a face off, but to get to that moment and then, uh, kind of just insert the most absurd, ridiculous and really self-deprecating joke, yeah. uh, <laughs> I thought was so, uh, just so excellent. I think that was genius. I imagine that was in the script from the outset. But yeah, it was so good to not see Hero getting pummeled by obviously superior bad guy and then bad guy makes one tiny mistake and Hero manages to do the one thing that'll defeat him and then Battered and Bruce steps away from the fight. Yeah, the oh my god, I can't believe rope a dope kind of, you know, classic. Yeah, you know, like he gets cocky, beats him up, he overly narrates the ending of your death i'm going to toy with you while i kill you no no just shoot him no no i'm going to toy with you first in the off chance that you find some way of actually killing me and then finally the one thing that we forgot about as an audience was left beside the arm of the guy and he leeches up at the last second and stabs him in a way that no one expected and there are a million films like that the i just i had a great cringe you know one of those oh my god they're not going to do this cringes when he started dancing uh, in a good way i thought it was just yeah yeah. but the character was far enough the character was far enough along that that was very appealing 
I mean, it, oh yeah, he, he he was so endearing. I mean, it was like, and he danced in a manner that was like, un, it was that actually his dance reminded me so much of Boogie Nights, where yeah. the the these were guys filled with passion, you know, and they're they're sure their their technical abilities are not necessarily that that great, but they got heart, you know, and how could you not grin when he was doing that dance and just feel like that he was cool, that he was a cool guy. You know, yeah. when I know that guy, Chris Pratt is pretty well known on television for his roles on TV and he's been in a couple movies. But after this, man, I mean, that guy's like mega star. He's like the, the male um, Jennifer Lawrence, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, having dropped what was 27 kilos or something, uh, just like in a 60 yeah, pounds, 60 pounds. Yeah, just I mean, good Lord, six months. That's uh, that's that's method acting. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh yeah actually yeah apparently they're all million another in joke is that zoe who plays the you know um mm-hmm. he's, she said i don't dance well in fact she's a trained ballerina she's <laughs> she's the only one there that can dance anyway that's enough uh for this week um we're gonna have to wind up the show there but it's been terrific talking to you guys and getting your uh opinions as i said there's a bunch of great um shows coming up in we'll be probably come out every fortnight uh is our as our way. Now we're clear of SIDGRAPH and stuff. So um, uh, we look forward to you joining us in upcoming eps. And we want to thank you guys in particular uh, for being on the show this week. And uh, Matt, where can people um, tune in to uh, find out your uh, whereabouts? Yeah, well, school just started here in Richmond. So I'm back on campus at Virginia Commonwealth University in the School of the Arts, uh, teaching computer graphics and animation to uh and games and stuff to all my eager young students but you can always find me there or um at mattwallen.com uh or on the twitters at mattwallen and ty you are also on campus i am indeed it's sort of it feels strangely um like like a time machine and when I was younger, Matt came to work where I was working at ILM, and now I've come to work at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University where he's working. Um, but uh, people can always find me at uh, alieninsect.com. Um, we have an active, lively, ongoing conversation on Facebook as well. Just look for Ty Rubin. Was that ILM at Kerner or was that ILM at Presidio? It was at Kerner. I was at both. I was actually at both this last trip. I was down at the Presidio doing some stuff, and then I was oh, up at thirty-two ten. Uh, up at thirty-two ten as well, yeah. Nice. And uh, it was, yeah. I've got to say, it's so funny to walk around the original home of ILM. It's such a shitty a dump. dump. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like this is where you know this. You know, it's like it's like Pixar was formed and ILM, and there's all this stuff, and there's this history, and it's like. I am sitting on the same, standing on the same piece of shitty carpet that, you know, they walked yeah. when they... I have a lot but, of weird nostalgia for that shitty dump, yeah. though. Like, it, I don't know but, why. I just thought of it when you were talking about 70s. Because, do you know when you, know, you have... Yeah, it, totally. Do you know there's this experience where there's always this thing, it's like you never want to really visit um, a nightclub or a bar in the daytime and actually turn yes. on the lights. <laughs> yes. the, the screening room in the D building, the D building screening room, I don't believe oh, I yes. ever saw it 
with lights on on the inside. Because it had that same quality. It's like you know that the upholstery, you know, was was the same yeah. upholstery that goes back yeah. to Empire or something like that. And but but I agree with Matt. It was a it was a real workspace, and the mutation modifications that went on to move production offices and pipe in, you know, cable. It was like a garage band. Or something. Yeah, it had a like it had people first. You know what I mean? Like it all. Totally. It all happened because of the people. There was nothing extra there. Well, I have uh, a good segue to put a plug in here because um, obviously key to that era was uh, Richard Edland, um, who won, I believe, four Oscars and two Cytecs, uh, but three of them were for Star Wars and then, uh, and then I think Raiders. But um, Richard and I sat down for a very long in-depth, detailed run-through of his career when I was in Los Angeles, and that'll be coming up on FX Guide. But, I mean, literally, we were there for hours um, going through stuff and him uh, getting a chance to explain some... Because quite often people skip over stuff in those, you know, and then you worked on Star Wars, and then you went on to this, and I I found it fascinating to actually... um, And he was very generous with his time. He's uh, obviously now very involved. He's actually (laughs) simultaneously on the Academy board, the uh, ACS and the VES How's that for a freaking? Uh, and he's still doing That's work, a right? Right there. But yeah, I mean, what a guy! And uh, so I had a, a ball of a time talking to Richard. So That's cool actually to do a up. profile of him. I mean, he's just like total, like kind of an unsung legend. I mean, everybody knows his name, but I, you know, I can't think of the last time I actually saw a big, if ever, a big profile just on. Well, that's that's exactly what we're doing. And of course, even if you, and you wouldn't, but even if you just started his career with Boss Films, you'd have enough, right? I mean, just the the work that those guys did on like Die Hard and Beyond and stuff, that would be enough of a reason to do a profile on the man. If you could, you know, somehow miraculously or or whatever, um, ignore the fact that he was there at the outset. And uh, he was at Robert Abel's uh, and Associates, and he tells this great story about how he was... You guys will love this. He's like... He twice did this in his career. He gave people a lot of notice, and I think he gave four months' notice to go when John Dykstra phoned him up to go over and work on the the Star Wars film, which he only did because of um, some of the casting decisions. But you'll hear about all this in the story. But anyway, the story I liked was he was on $350 a week, and uh, Robert Abels and Associates started realizing how valuable he was. And so he kept on getting pay rises almost every week during this four-month period that he was leaving (laughs) because they were like, yeah, no, we've decided to give you another pay rise. And I think by the end, I have to remember this playback, the interview, but he was something on like like $600 or maybe $800. Like he doubled his salary in four months with them thinking, if we just gave him another 50 bucks, maybe he wouldn't leave to go and work in the valley at that – uh, that's uh, that Star Warsy thing, um, but of course uh, he actually took a pay cut to go from uh, Robert Abel and Associates, who are doing great work, but mainly in commercials, to go and work with uh, John Dykstra and uh, and the rest of the guys. And uh, boy, what a good decision that was! Anyway, that's all coming up on FX Guide. I just want to thank our uh, team for putting the uh, show together. Uh, Todd, who uh, is our producer, who prepares our materials. Um, Honestly, Matt, we just rely on Todd and the guys uh, behind the scenes putting stuff together each week. It's uh, incredibly uh, generous of them, and they work really absolutely. hard to do stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, without uh, them, I think, uh, well, I mean, I, I probably sound kind of stupid most of the time, <laughs> but I'd sound really stupid if it weren't for uh, Todd and Ian and the rest of the guys who uh, help put all the stuff together for the dossier. So it's, I mean, I think the quality of the show uh, is largely due to what those guys do. And, of course, our editors and uh, it just all the guys that put the, the stuff together. It's a definitely a, a team effort. So I want to thank them and want to thank you guys for being with us. And uh, I'll just, well, 
leave you with the simple I am Mike Seymour. Until next time, see you. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com.